new episode of Hashtag Neverland coming this Thursday. The topic will be men and mental health. We look forward to bringing you this episode and can't wait for you to hear it. Hi everyone and welcome to Hashtag Never Alone Season 3 Episode 8. I am your lived experience host Joe Ambridge. And I'm psychotherapist and relationship counsellor Mark Fielding and Joe's co-host. And today's topic is diagnosis and starting your journey, road to recovery. Um, we have two more episodes left of road to recovery and then we'll be moving moving on to recovery. Can't speak today. <laughs> um, we So we're talking about diagnosis, so people um, being diagnosed with a mental health disorder when they go to like a doctor or something or a psychiatrist. Um, definitely been through that myself with um, being diagnosed with men, um, anxiety and depression at the start of my mental health journey, which I feel like was obviously a little bit longer before you have the diagnosis. And I feel like until you have the diagnosis, it's kind of hard to start your journey not knowing what is wrong or what's wrong with you and what's causing the issues that you're having. Um, and then I was diagnosed with BPD by a psychiatrist because I was having these mood swings, which I've spoken about in previous episodes. And then we're going to talk a little bit about starting a journey, so referrals and stuff to psychiatrists, um, getting prescription for medication, stuff like that. Um, and we are joined now by Lisa Myers, who's very kindly going to speak about the topics that we are discussing today. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, maybe just give us a little insight to your background and what you do in terms to sure. mental health. Yeah, sure. So I am a psychiatrist. Um, I started just with general adult psychiatry, but I found myself really enjoying working with young people. And I suppose in terms of journeys, I think working with young people is great because you can get in early in terms of that that journey and and really helping them. And so I trained um, as a child adolescent psychiatrist, which is now um, what I practice predominantly. Yeah, and, it, and you work with what, what? What kind of age group, Lisa? Would, would you would you generally work with? Mark, um, it varies. I'd say anywhere really from about seven or eight years old to about. I'm trying to just sort of limited to 18 at the moment because in the practice where I work there are other uh, psychiatrists who see adults and because there are so few child adolescent psychiatrists around I feel probably it's best I reserve any time that I have to um, accommodate for those clients. And this is probably you know a massive question but what, what kind of kind of presenting you know issues presenting kind of mental health conditions to the people tend to come with. I mean, what what is? I mean, I guess there's all you deal with all sorts of things. But what 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 are the kind of common common things that you you tend to deal with? Um, well, working in the child adolescent space, it, it can be anything from ADHD, um, autistic spectrum disorder, mm. depression, anxiety, lots of social anxiety, lots of OCD. Um, so yeah pretty much anything and everything mm. and, and i wanted to ask i mean maybe we pick up on, on a few of those things but in terms of adhd i mean adhd is something that I'm, I'm seeing kind of more and more you know in my practice i think it's probably being diagnosed more really that's probably why but in, in terms of just taking adhd and looking at somebody coming before diagnosis 
and, and what their kind of journey would be, you know, from coming to see you and then being diagnosed and then perhaps getting, you know, medication or, you know, or, or other help. Well, what would the journey look like, Lisa? For um, it, it probably varies, like depending on the person. I'm just thinking often if we if we're looking at a at a child, perhaps um, they may be referred by the school. Um, teachers often noting if it's if it's hyperactivity or impulsivity, then they're disrupting the classroom, perhaps being overly chatty and um, not not paying attention or not reaching their potential. So they'll often come, um, you know, and parents might also note those things. And to diagnose ADHD, we obviously need those symptoms across more than one setting. So we'd want to see it at home and at school. And, and I suppose because there's so much symptom overlap with a lot of conditions, um, having that present in both settings probably helps rule out the fact that it could be a child just responding to their environment. Mm. So um, we look for that. I suppose in adults, we are seeing a lot more adults come through and present um, for an assessment and diagnosis. And I think our our understanding of ADHD now has really changed. So before we thought, you know, there was this thinking, oh, a child will outgrow ADHD. Mm. But I think like most conditions often equate mental health to physical health. I mean, we don't just grow out of our blood pressure, you know, or grow out of our diabetes. Like it's, it's just, it's so we realize now we don't grow out of our ADHD, but our presentation will vary. So kids are disruptive in the classroom. Um, adults are struggling with jobs. Um, yeah. You know, it's the, the person at home really struggling to manage the household. Where are my keys? Where is this? Losing this. Um, or lots of difficulty within relationships because they're not attentive and 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 or they're impulsive and maybe seeking out other partners I think some of those symptoms as you would know just need to be really looked at carefully I think the big thing is assessing properly so that you take everything into account and when you are giving somebody a diagnosis that even if you're not 100% sure you're at least explaining what that even means mm. so maybe it's a, it's it's a process of understanding and I think that's um you know the, that's sometimes that you know, a bit difficult when you're trying to explain all of that to to a client um, and in terms of reaction and stuff to uh diagnosis do you have a mixed variety like some people kind of have that relief that they finally got answers or then people and then obviously you might have the opposite end where people are in denial about it because they don't want to accept that they might have a mental health disorder mm, absolutely I think um a lot of people want a diagnosis and and um and I guess they find relief and also just an explanation and they feel okay so you know I'm not crazy it is this or it is that and personally I like to understand things I often feel like I would rather know something and then I can deal with it but as the professional I'm always gauging that sensitivity and and how the person in front of me would take 
the news, you know, it, it, especially if you're talking to parents and, and you want to say, you know, this child has um, autism or, or ADHD or, you, I guess, gauging how the parents will handle that. So sometimes I may not just deliver that as a diagnosis and I might rather talk to the symptoms and how they are best treated and rather than just putting a label on it. So yeah, I guess I guess everyone's different and I and as a professional you probably want to gauge that so that you handle it well and sensitively because these are sensitive areas. Yeah, uh, for me personally when I had my diagnosis in terms of the depression side of things I felt like I had it for a while and I wasn't that aware of mental health disorders at the time. I knew of depression and I knew of panic attacks but I wasn't aware of anxiety. I didn't know what anxiety was. Um, but when I had my diagnosis, I was on my own when I went, I took myself to the doctors because I'd been struggling with quite a few things and he diagnosed me with it. And I got him to help tell my mum the diagnosis because I was worried about telling her and stuff because there's been stuff that I didn't like not told her about self-harming and stuff like that. So it was a bit of a struggle to come out and tell those things to my mum. So I asked him to help me. And then when I got diagnosed with BPD, my partner was with me and she spoke to the psychiatrist about some of the symptoms I've been having because there was obviously stuff that maybe I wasn't aware of that were impacting other people and she helped describe and I think that helped with the diagnosis a little bit. But that's so great. That's so great. And I think when you are open and we can be vulnerable and we can we can take these things on. That's when change can happen. That's when we can actually do something with this. And I'm I usually like to actually think of the person's story rather than just a, mm. a simple diagnosis. It feels so it feels so unfair and so narrow. You know, I think it's helpful to understand, but when we understand it as our story and how we've come to this point in our lives based on our genetics and our life circumstances and our temperament and and how we've adapted um and then where we're at it it makes more sense and then we can go okay so now I know why I do that or why I'm struggling with that and then how I can help myself and how other people can help me so I think it's more than just that label it's it's really that understanding and openness and being able to involve other people in in that as well but that's so great that you know you did that I think that that's you know that's the vulnerability and the lack of shame that's kind of needed to really improve yeah it really like, sorry yeah it was a, a big thing really like coming out and saying those things to my mum because she wasn't aware and I, I think maybe a few of my friends were aware of it um I'm a lot more open about my mental health now because I know that it helps personally obviously doing podcasts and stuff and even before that being open about mental health helps because then you're going to get the help you need and the support you need and it makes that journey a lot easier and you realize you're not your mental health you're Joe with these issues or with these challenges or it's not you. Just as as I said in the beginning, I always use the physical health. It's like, well, I could you could have had diabetes or hypertension. It is this, and 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 now by owning it, that's how you can actually manage it. And I was going to say, I mean, it's really helped you, Joe, isn't it? I mean, in terms of your kind of personal style, I mean, the diagnosis has 
has massively helped really hasn't it your journey yeah especially the second part of the diagnosis the bpd's helped it explain quite a lot of things because um i've just as well and that obviously affects your, your emotional side and i thought a lot of that was because of the dyspraxia and then once I was diagnosed I was having these mood swings and stuff quite a lot going from one extreme to another and I thought oh it's just part of who I am that's probably just because of my my learning disability or the emotional side of things and then once I got that diagnosis to have BPD it just helped so much with everything with my relationships with my friendships and stuff like that and just understanding mm-hmm. that that wasn't that wasn't normal to be having these mood swings that go from one extreme to the next and originally I thought I had bipolar mm-hmm. and then when they said that I had personality disorder it just made a lot of sense and mm-hmm. I had a lot more of the symptoms when I had that diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Also kind of pulling in you know diagnosis a little bit and just just also just kind of bringing you in Joe yeah because I, I mean I think it's quite common for depending on the condition that that people, I mean, I'm thinking of things like particularly like, I don't know, bipolar, you know, BPD, that people maybe there'll be a bit of a medication journey. People maybe will try something. I mean, I think this happens a lot with antidepressants and maybe people try something for the first time and that will work and that's great. You know, but, but often I think people will maybe try a few medications before they mm. find one that really works. Is, is that, is that your experience, Lisa? I mean, everyone's journey is different, of course, but. Yep, definitely. Yeah. And I think, you know, mental health is hard because we're we're making a lot of um, clinical assessments and we don't have the same tools that other areas of health have. You can't do an x-ray. You can't, I mean, there are, there are things out there and sometimes they can be helpful brain mapping or, or testing, different psychological testing. But a lot of times we're making a clinical assessment and we're using sort of what we know from science and then also that art of just really talking to someone and and getting a sense of what is happening for them. And obviously it depends on what the person's also telling you because I've definitely had the experience where I've dealt with the presenting symptoms, but then as the journey continues, the client might feel comfortable enough to tell me more and Often it's trauma that's 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 um, brought up or, or or something really difficult, and that might explain a host of other things that potentially we've been trying to treat but not really getting it right. And then that'll be like, oh wow, you know, um, that makes sense. So, um, as far as medication goes, so I like to kind of have an idea of what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And then I'll explain to the client, this is where the medication fits in. This is why we're doing this. And if this works, then fine. And if this doesn't work, then perhaps we'll go down this road because, you know, I'm thinking this, this or that. And it's a bit of trial and error. Sometimes I know exactly what I'm treating. Let's say it's ADHD. But a client may not respond well to the first medication. Or I know it's depression, but they don't respond well to the first. Not that it doesn't work for them. It could be that they have side effects to it or um, it keeps them awake or, you know, just just simple things like that. And then I have to go, okay, well, let's try this instead. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit of trial and error, which sometimes gives, I guess, mental health not the best um, reputation because people will say, oh, you're experimenting with me. It's not experimenting. I think if you work with a clinician who is very clear 
and tells you why they're doing things. And I think they should be telling you that and you should be asking them to explain what they're thinking so you don't feel like a guinea pig. And I'm wondering, you know, just kind of move segueing into something, something related. I'm wondering about, you know, stigma, you know, because I think taking, you know, I mean, taking medication for mental health, you know, I mean, unfortunately, I mean, there's a long way to go in terms of stigma. You know, I mean, people will take a painkiller, you know, if they hurt their leg, but, you know, but if they have to take any kind of mental health medication, often, you know, all of the stigma comes in and, you know, it's looked at really, really differently. And I'm just wondering, and I'm also looking at the generations. I mean, it's interesting, I guess, where you're positioned, because I'm guessing when you're working with teenagers, maybe their idea and, you know, their idea around taking medication and perhaps the stigma around it is probably a lot less than their parents. Again, I'm generalizing mm. and i'm just i'm just wondering about the stigma and what what you see and is there a generational component often people consider it differently if they're if they're from an older generation yeah i i, I think maybe a bit of that and then also just the person in general and and i guess different families different people have you know may be more open-minded to the whole idea um I think there's a lot of fear in taking medication. Uh, what will it do? Will it change me? Will it change my brain? How will, you know, how will this impact? And so just explaining sometimes how these medications work and also how they fit into the bigger plan because we're using medication sometimes to control for extreme emotion or extreme anxiety, and then we can implement the other strategies that we're developing in our therapies and elsewhere but the way our brains work if if our emotions are overwhelming we can't really switch on those parts of our brain to to deal with um to actually use those therapy strategies and skills so and again i i agree i think there's so much stigma and it's a shame because many people who probably can really benefit from help um, don't always get it and then there's cases where I see kids who really need help and support but their parents are not uh, are very against the medication and so they won't get what what they need one thing I've noticed is definitely a common theme with medication is that I think people expect it to work straight away and also they expect it, every medication to work for one person or it's the same with like paracetamol sometimes it might not work with one person it might work for another person but like with medication I think people expect it to work straight away and then they stop taking it because it's not working um I've definitely mm. noticed that's especially with some of my friends they've taken medication or like I don't want to get addicted so I don't want to take it like yeah but then it's helping you and if you need to you can ease off it and you can go to something that may be less strong that's you're not gonna get hooked on you it's not addictive if you can come off of it you can ease off of it i've been on stuff and i've been on so many different medications and i've been eased off of it to go into something else because that medication is not working anymore like my body's mm. become like adjusted to it and the effects aren't working mm. Mm. well i think it's that that thing of you know a lot of health most of health i'd say unless you're cutting out a a little tumor or something most of the time we're managing things we're not fixing things you know we don't fix somebody's blood pressure where they take the tablet and then it's gone so the same with depression anxiety these are chronic 
illnesses and they need to be managed. And sometimes medication forms part of that management plan. It's not the magic bullet and it, it, it won't just fix everything, but it's meant to relieve things enough that we can also implement the other um, strategies and skills that, that we learn along the way. Yeah, I mean, I find myself really resonating with what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, for for some people, you know, I mean, again, you know, everyone is completely different, but for some people, you know, a combination of medication and, you know, counselling or therapy, you know, works really, really well. And, you know, and as you say, perhaps the medication, you know, the emotional regulation, perhaps that gives someone, you know, that really opens up the door to them, you know, benefiting from a talking therapy. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, all these things kind of run in tandem. I mean, I, this is kind of moving on to something else, but I'm just, just wondering what you saw over COVID. I mean, what, what did you see over COVID? I mean, in terms of the kind of clients that were coming to you and the effects of COVID and, the, you know, the lockdowns and everything else? Um, Look, I often get asked whether things are busier since COVID, and I say mental health was always busy. I think it's been brought to the forefront and and probably legitimised a lot of um, people's struggles. Um, It's interesting. I I found during the lockdown actually sometimes quieter periods because um, of various reasons. I think many people weren't working and so obviously thinking about finances but I also think that it's interesting during a, a really stressful period, such as COVID, I think it is, it's almost like we go into autopilot. We're just sort of getting through and functioning as best we can. And I think I'm actually finding that it's more this after effect, um, getting people back to school, uh, managing just getting back into normal life. I'm still seeing a lot of people really just down, not motivated, really struggling to get back into exercise and, and just routines have, have really suffered. And, and a lot of people really struggling to get back on their feet. So I think the aftermath, I think we are, we really are seeing a lot of, um, a lot of mental health on the back of 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 COVID, and I suppose it's not really completely gone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I really hear, I really hear what you say. So, like the trauma of COVID, you know, has happened, and people are getting on. And it, I guess there's novelty at the start as well. You know, people are getting on, and they're on autopilot. And then maybe you know the the kind of consequences come in. I mean, something that you you mentioned that you you work with earlier, social anxiety. I mean, something that mm-hmm. I've seen a lot in my practices, and I think this is. It's it, it, it's really kind of present with introverts, I, I think, actually, going back out into the world mm. after retreating. So I think that, you know, this is, again, a massive generalisation, right? but I think, mm. you know, lockdowns and, you know, being stuck at home, I think, has been easier, I think, for introverts often. Sure. But then mm. going back out into the world, going back to work, going into situations where there's, you know, there's groups, there seems to be a lot of social anxiety that's been created by by the lockdowns. I don't know whether that's something that maybe you resonate oh, with. Yeah, definitely. And I've uh, obviously working with kids. I think COVID rescued a lot of kids, and and I suppose their anxiety wasn't as evident. And so we're seeing all these kids come out of COVID who don't want to go back to school and are extremely anxious. And it's like, but they were fine for two or three years. And it's like, yeah but they were also not really put under any pressure. They were allowed to hide in their room. They were allowed to 
socialize over the screens. And so there was no need to to really be anxious. So I think there was that mix of the sort of social person who was really depressed being in lockdown and and needing, you know, their friends and and having to be out there. And then those who who really found comfort in it. Um, I don't know if you noticed it, for me personally, and some of the people I know with mental health um, issues or mental health disorders, I felt like uh, it was easier to cope if you already had a mental health disorder before COVID and lockdown because you were kind of adjusted to the like distress, the distress and the worst case scenario. You were prepared, best prepared for it. You kind of expect it normally anyway when you've got mental health. Mm. Well, it makes me think I had one client who'd been in hospital for mental health and and uh, and she said to me, you know, now everybody knows what it's like to be sort of trapped and and struggling. So perhaps exactly what you say, Joe, I think having, well, it's, it's probably that, that idea of we build resilience through these journeys. When I see clients and we get through things, it's, you know, I'm always so happy and it's like they're not the ones getting the gold medal, but they should be because you see people overcoming such incredible struggles and challenges and it's like, and I say, you know what, this is just one of many, but at least you'll draw on this experience. You'll draw on the on this that I can actually cope with anything if I just get the right help, settle myself down, have the right people around me, you know, all those basic things that that just build our resilience. Yeah. And uh, and again, really resonating with what you're saying. I mean, there's obviously nobody wants to go through, you know, difficult times, you know, difficult mental health. But, you know, there is a resilience that I think can come as a result of kind of difficult experiences. And I think that's what you're speaking to, Lisa. And I think that is true. And, and it also astonishes me, you know, often people's ability to transcend oh. incredibly complicated and traumatic and difficult experiences i just find it amazing i mean it doesn't always happen but no it's 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 mind-blowing like when you come across people every day and their struggles and their suffering and they and and how they get through i'm sometimes like you know i'll think to myself i don't think i would cope with that i don't think i would deal with that and then I see these people do it and it's like, and young people often that I deal with and I'm I'm just blown away at people's strength and courage. Yeah, I mean, exactly the same. I mean, I, blown away is a good description. I mean, I'm often yeah. really blown away. Yeah, and also people's ability to, you know, to get through kind of adverse childhood experiences. I mean, that, you know, sometimes, you know, hearing about, you know, someone's childhood and thinking, goodness me, you know, the person that's, I did they're so resilient and so strong you know and has impacted but the ability to push through and then to you know with 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 help to kind of move forward and you know and live the kind of life that they want it's just amazing mm. really and, know. and you know the growth from trauma as well I mean you know I, I'm kind of hesitant when I say that because I know that's not everyone's experience but I think often there is growth from trauma but you know somewhere along the line mm. yeah. well the good and the bad it all shapes us yeah I mean absolutely mm. If it's okay, I wanted to kind of segue into, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about OCD, mm. really, and, and just a treatment journey for OCD. Um, I mean, again, you know, everyone's different and it's going to be general, but I mean, if somebody has 
I mean, say a teenager, for instance, you know, is really struggling with OCD. And goodness me, that's such a crippling condition mm. for some people, isn't mm. it? You know, what would a treatment journey, you know, look like for, for that kind of generic client? Mm. Look, often I think they start with the psychologist, um, probably with a GP, good GP sort of recognises it because it can be a tricky one, OCD. I think sometimes people don't know they have OCD. And and obviously the layman sort of, when they hear OCD, they're actually thinking of, I guess, an obsessive personality, the person who's so fastidious and, and got everything super organised and not recognising, I guess, the intrusive thoughts. Um, as you say, so debilitating, sometimes like intrusive thoughts around my sexuality or, or, or um, you know, inappropriate sexual thoughts or um, whatever else it is. But I guess not recognising OCD, but so perhaps starting at a GP and, and then going to the, a psychologist who might help them with some basic um therapy around that whether it's exposure and response prevention or cbt um, or act uh, which i think is really good for um ocd and then often if the therapy is um kind of not managing it sufficiently they'll refer on to the psychiatrist and that's where i'll i'll probably get somebody coming in from their psychologist and just saying like the OCD is just really too severe and probably requires medication and then we'll start with medication and I've had a few clients young clients where we've ended up doing TMS which is also really helpful for OCD so we've been doing quite a bit of that um, unfortunately though at this stage Medicare is only funding um, for depression and over 18 hopefully that'll change because um, I think it's it's another really useful treatment yeah on um, the topic of like psychiatrists and psychologists and stuff how do you decide which one like you want to refer them to and does it depend on the mental health disorder yeah definitely I think most most often a GP might first opt for a psychologist if it's mild to moderate depression and many of the GPs are really so skilled in mental health so they might even start a medication themselves um, obviously the psychologist would generally do a lot of the the therapy and most psychiatrists wouldn't do much therapy although myself I not so much anymore because I'm doing a lot more assessments even though I'll continue to follow clients and I'll always do a lot of talking because I think you've got to get to know somebody um, but um, there are psychiatrists who will do therapy and and are said to be I, I suppose psychotherapists um, but traditionally the psychologist would do more of the therapy and the psychiatrist more of the medication and I guess the working in tandem, I mean, I'm just thinking about, mm -hmm. you know, I was, I was just to kind of re rewind to the OCD a little bit. Uh, working in tandem, I think, is also so helpful. I mean, I, you know, there's a whole spectrum of OCD symptoms, isn't there? But, you know, I think I think sometimes, you know, talking therapy alone is not enough, for, mm. you know, for mm. really, really extreme OCD. And, you know, when you talk about the intrusive thoughts, I mean, that is so true. You know, there is a an idea so you know this socially constructed idea of you know ocd is needing things to be a certain way in the external world but 
but but often it, it's the intrusive thoughts isn't mm. it? i mean it's what's the mm. brain is doing that is completely mm. overwhelming for people mm. and, and it's torturous yeah. yeah it's torture horrible and it, it responds really well to medication oh. and ocd is very hereditary it's probably one of the most hereditary of mental health disorders in fact mm. so it has a strong genetic underpinnings and, and it does respond well to medication. It takes longer though. OCD traditionally takes longer when it comes to medication, whereas and sort of for depression, anxiety, we often refer to the four to six weeks kind of to gauge whether the medication's working. But OCD traditionally requires a much longer time period and also usually higher doses. Mm. That's the other thing is doses. I think people to understand a dose doesn't really equal how unwell you are. A dose could relate to your, you know, body size, your gender, your metabolism. Some kids are given much higher doses than adults. So because um, people are quite afraid when you say, oh, you know, you might need an increased dose or I might need to up your dose. And then they sort of feel, oh, what's wrong with me? Why do I need more of this medication? But it it doesn't mean that. I, mean, I think that's probably reassuring for a lot of listeners because I think it is viewed like that often, isn't it? You know, I mean, just taking depression, for instance, you know, maybe someone might start on, you know, a, a small dosing and gradually work up. But but often people think, oh, goodness, you know, I'm, I must be really depressed mm. if, mm. You, you know, if the psychiatrist or the GP is giving me a higher dose. But as you say, it's it's not, you know, always directly related to, mm -hmm. you know, to the, there's many other factors really in terms of the dosing. Mm. But it is looked at like that, though, Lisa, isn't it? Often mm -hmm. the higher dose, the more, you know, the more depressed I am, the more mm. I'm struggling. I mean, so again, almost stigma, sometimes, yeah. yeah, almost sometimes seen as an achievement to be on a lower dose. Yeah, and it's like, you know, which which it's not. I think the achievement is really just being able to manage yourself and taking ownership and doing what you need to be well. I think that's that's really what it's about. Yeah, and and also I think people, you know, people wanting to come off so quickly. You know, I mean, this is also I think part partly due to the stigma of mental health medication you know some someone could be you know someone could be helped by taking an antidepressant for for instance you know but but with for, for some clients the minute they they their help they just want to come off it straight mm. away you know mm. oh, i've got to get off this antidepressant you know which i understand you know i mean you, you, people don't want to take medication if, you know if they can help it for the rest of their life but there's, there's so much stigma i think internalized stigma that even though someone's being helped by something you know that they they want to get off it, mm. you know. They 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 don't mm. want to be seen to be taking a you know mental health medication, mm. and, and hopefully that will change over time. I mean, do, do you think that is changing, Lisa? Slowly, and it's great yeah. that people are talking about it, and it's great that we see more high profile people also talking about their mental health struggles and making it okay. Particularly males, I think traditionally sort of uh, not to generalize, but often that you know, it's seen as a weakness and, and I should be able to manage everything, which is a bit of a shame because I think it, it stops people from getting help. But yeah, I, I usually just advocate for being flexible. I think if we can be flexible and compassionate with ourselves, at times I need a little bit more, at times I might need a little bit less. So 
you know, I might say to a young person who wants to come off their meds, that's fine. I will support you coming off your medication as long as we can be flexible. And if you're struggling, then we talk about it and, and sort of make another plan. Yeah, um, I was, when um, obviously we got referred to you and stuff, I was just wanted to know a little bit about uh, Aware Hub. We just mm. a bit about what that is and what, um, yeah, what it, what it is really. Yeah, so I had always worked by myself um, in in practice. I always did a bit of public and private work. And um, but private practice can be very um, lonely and it's, it's often very hard to work as a team. The other thing I found was um, I, I was getting a little bit sort of frustrated just working one on one. And that's why I think podcasts or books or whatever are just so great, because hopefully somebody listening to this can, you know, get that help that they might not otherwise get. And so working one on one over the years has been quite frustrating for me because I often feel there's so many people out there that just need to hear the right message or get the right help. And so starting the clinic was about bringing more people on board that perhaps thought the same and, and that we could, you know, if I had referrals, I could share them with other doctors and other psychiatrists and work with psychologists and just easier to work together when we're all in the same space. What I've actually started doing now, I, I um, we have a GP who started, and because I have such a big wait list, I'm trying to work with a GP who's then right there with me um, to actually see some of the clients who are on the wait list. I can review all the paperwork and the documentation and then offer my opinion and sort of just get through a whole lot more people. So... Um, and, and also with the clinic, we wanted to make it more holistic. So have an exercise physiologist and a dietitian and offer yoga, yoga for trauma, um, meditation, and, and I suppose allow people to enter at different points. We also offer TMS and, and um, so sort of tiers of treatment and the setting that we created there is, is very non-threatening. So people would feel much more comfortable and not think, or I'm going into a psychiatrist's office or a psychologist's office. It's a really beautiful setting. We try to make it a really lovely experience for people coming in. In fact, when we were doing the fit out, um, the, the one of the builders or the landlord said, why are you doing such a, you know, extensive fit out? And I was like, well, you know, obviously I, I want people who are coming in here and putting so much into themselves and their mental health to actually have like a good experience and a lovely experience rather than just sort of, you know, standard clinic setting, which can be very sterile and, and often not very inviting. Yeah. And, and I guess for some people that maybe have not, you know, really been exposed to any kind of mental health services, I mean, the idea of going to a very clinical environment and seeing, you know, a psychiatrist, goodness mm. me, terrifying mm. for them. I mean, mm. people that come for psychotherapy, you know, often really scared if they've got no experience of, of the field. So the environment, as you say, so important. Mm. Mm. Oh, and I've always thought that working in the hospital setting, how the psych ward is often the worst ward in the hospital. 
and and it's just you know you've got people in there trying to deal with their mental health and it's it's just not a just even having plants we you know we decided we wanted to put a plant like a green wall and have plants because just just small things that that make the environment just that much nicer so yeah i think it's so important yeah um before we wrap up or just if anyone wanted to get in touch with you how would they find you uh they can go on our website so it's at uh www.awarehub.com.au and they should find details there to get hold of us our phone number and, and reception um, our reception email and i am actually in the next um month or so probably october I wrote a book. Um, I actually lost my dad four years ago, and it was quite a traumatic experience. Um, and following that, and and sort of struggling a bit with PTSD myself, and just dealing with grief, which is another massive sort of area. Um, and I'd always wanted to write a book on mental health, more I suppose more just to provide more information and education and so I wrote, I, I sort of had started and then lost my father. And um, and then I went on to finish this book. It's called When the Light Goes Out. And it's about trauma and loss and grief and, and having that experience myself. So it's a bit of a personal story. Um, maybe I'll be able to come back if you guys invite me and, and talk about the book or I'll share it with you. But um it's a bit about how um, living that trauma and then um, and the grief and then I guess stories of of clients and other people that I'd worked with as I was going through this myself, sort of realizing just the extent of trauma and grief and how much I guess going through that experience just enhances our compassion and our understanding of other people's struggles and suffering so um yeah so I suppose out of a very horrible thing hopefully something good good has come yeah well I think um yeah sorry for your loss and hopefully like we'll get people to buy the book and stuff we've had quite a few authors on the stuff and they've had some amazing like books and stuff that we'll share um, my last question I wanted to ask was, what's your favourite coping strategy? Well, I'm sure you can realise I'm a big talker. So <laughs> I have actually been engaged with therapy myself since 2003. I was always engaged in my own therapy. And I have felt having a space to talk and to be curious and to think about myself and deal with all of the challenges, whether it's been, you know, marriage breakdown or, or, or you know, children or whatever it is, I think having a space to kind of a safe space and a trusted space to go and talk has been been the most helpful for me. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will find this beneficial to listen to. Um, and thank you to Mark for helping co-host again. Um, I'm due to be on the What Makes You Happy podcast next week. Um, I was supposed to go on this week, but unfortunately got rescheduled. But yeah, stay tuned for that. I'll be sharing that link when it comes out. Um, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in and stay tuned for next week's episode.
Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, thanks, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Nice Thank to meet you. you. If you or anyone you know has been affected by the topics discussed in today's episode or previous episodes, please contact your local or country's helpline. You will find them by going to Google and typing in helpline. Um, they have Samaritans, suicide helpline, but remember that you're not alone, as the title of the podcast says. Um, there are many other people like you that have got mental health issues and feel suicidal and feel alone, but there's always someone there for you to talk to, be it a friend, a family member, a stranger, a psychotherapist or a doctor. There's someone to talk to. I've been in that position before. And talking to someone really does help. It's okay to not be okay. And I will see you in the next episode.